Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. Lord, we magnify Your name this morning. We give You the praise and the glory and the honor and the majesty due Your name. For what You have done, for who You are, for what You will do, everything about You is good. Everything is perfect. And everything you do is perfect. You do all things well. Thank you, Father. We pray that our time with you this morning has been sweet to you and will continue to aid us in our lives on this earth below while we wait for the day when we are indeed resurrected and glorified when we are with you in your presence giving you praise and glory, singing hallelujah through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, from 1730 to 1755, the 13 American colonies experienced what is known as the Great Awakening. And while we may not realize it, those revivals had a profound and permanent impact on the church in America. In fact, what it led to was the church becoming less the institution and more toward the individual. Salvation was your relationship with Jesus Christ, not your relationship with the church, if that makes sense. Your piety, your devotion, your dedication was on you. There was no uh, need for the minister to be relied on for your salvation or for your sanctification. In New England alone, 50,000 souls were added to the churches. And the demand for the gospel was so strong that in one year, the English preacher George Whitfield preached 350 gospel messages, each at a minimum of two hours in length. <laughs> And he held the crowds from 20,000, imagine, 20,000, no speakers, no electricity, no amplifiers, just this man's booming voice, 20,000 to several hundred, he held them spellbound. And even though George Whitfield died at the relatively young age of 55, it is estimated that he spoke over 18,000 times to 10 million people. No radio, no television, no social media. Even Benjamin Franklin, a religious skeptic at best, became close friends with George Whitfield. And so, what was it that launched probably the greatest revival in American history? Well, it turns out it was a sermon, <laughs> a single sermon, can you imagine, by Jonathan Edwards, and the title of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, you've probably heard the title of the message before, but maybe you don't know anything about the message. Let me explain it to you. He had ten major points. Today we have three points in a poem. And, uh, but he had ten. This was 
back when you when you rode your horse for 30 miles to get to church, you didn't want to leave right away. You ate and then you said, give me some more. <laughs> Ten points. Here they are. First, God may cast the wicked into hell at any given moment. Second, the wicked desire uh, deserve judgment. Divine justice does not prevent God from destroying the wicked at any given moment. Third, the wicked, the uh, dead, at this moment suffer under God's condemnation in hell. Fourth, the living, the wicked, must not think simply because they are not physically in hell that God is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those miserable creatures now so tormented. Fifth, at any moment God shall permit him, Satan stands ready to seize the wicked as his own. Sixth, if it were not for God's restraints, there are in the souls of wicked men Hellish principles reigning, which presently released, would kindle hellfire on earth. Seven, simply because there are not visible means of death before them at any given moment, the wicked should not feel secure. Eight, simply because it is natural to care for oneself or to think that others may care for them, men should not think themselves safe from the wrath of God. Ninth, all that wicked men may do to save themselves from hell's pains shall afford them nothing if they reject Christ. Tenth, God has never promised to save us from hell except for those contained in Christ. So Edward's conclusion was this. Let us, therefore, who are outside of Christ, awake and flee from the wrath to come. According to Edwards, only by returning to Christ can we escape judgment. Now, can I say uh, that Edwards' message, the impetus, okay, the genesis, the beginning of an entire generation turning to Jesus Christ today would only warrant derision, <laughs> scorn, and hate from our society. Talk of judgment, you see, is no longer in vogue. Just Tuesday, two days ago, just two days ago, you can look it up, a prominent human rights leader whom... All of you in this room know his name. Said this. If you're looking for a savior, get up and get a mirror. Reminiscent of Shirley MacLaine, those of us who are old enough to remember her on the beach shouting, I am God. I am God. You know, our, our culture, in short order, has gone from awake and flee to Christ for salvation from the wrath to come, to awake, look in the mirror and gaze upon your Savior. Boy, the very thought it makes me cringe. It makes my skin crawl. But the appeal is crystal clear, is it not? 
I mean, the appeal is absolutely clear because if you're all that and a cup of tea, then the only judge that you have to deal with is yourself. You understand that? If you are the captain of your soul, if you are the ruler of your domain, you determine what is right. You determine what is wrong. There is no eternal judgment for you. (laughs) That's nonsense. What a comforting thought. Not. (laughs) You know, some of us are harder on ourselves than we are on others. So I don't think we're in the clear on that one. But nevertheless, there's been a cultural shift all the way back since the Enlightenment, which I believe has come to near fruition today. I don't think it's come to fruition yet. I don't think we've seen what Jonathan Edwards was talking about in terms of if it were not for the restraints of the Holy Spirit on our society today, there are hellish principles in us that would release hellfire on earth. I believe that. Edwards was not wrong. Edwards knew exactly what he was talking about. We saw some of that wickedness throughout history My fear is we will see it again. But judgment, the shift since the Enlightenment, is after all about the right to rule. God has the right to rule and reign over us, not simply our hearts, not simply our lives, but over all of creation. He created us, therefore He can stand in judgment over us. Ah, But today we've moved well beyond that, haven't we? We've grown up from resisting our siblings watching us when our parents weren't at home. You're not the boss of me. Today we see it. We see many in the streets loudly proclaim to those who actually do have authority, you're not the boss of me. Anarchy in the heart. A disrespect for authority in the heart. James 4.12 tells us this. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We're not to judge. But why? We're not to judge because there is one judge to whom all other judges receive their authority. And that judge is God. This is so important to understand. As our culture moves further and further away from God, we think that judgment from God is less and less deserved. Who is God that he should have the authority to rule over me? God has no ownership over us. He has no right to judge us. But that in the society, don't think the church has escaped this. We have not. Even in the church at large, someone who I have respected for their previous body of work said this. It's been clearly communicated to many that this belief in hell as eternal conscious torment is a central truth of the Christian faith. And to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. This is misguided and toxic 
and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, and forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Now listen to that message, because there's an appeal to it. There's an appeal to it. That appeal is, in fact, the title of the book, Love Wins. But while unbiblical, you see that according to him, God won't judge ultimately, forever. Do you know why? Because his loving, his compassion, his merciful nature won't allow it. Indeed, many in our culture uh, believe that no one has the right to judge them. We see this is becoming more and more a way of life. No God, no judgment. Makes sense. No authority, no judgment. I reject your authority and I replace it with my own, they say. (laughs) In their minds, all judgment is unjust, it is unfair, and is prejudicial. Yet, because their God is in their mirror, they exercise the king's authority with capriciousness and in an arbitrary manner. So that while you may not judge them, they will stand in judgment over you. The wicked are like their father, Satan. What was, what did Satan do? He usurped the authority of God. What does the wicked do? They usurp authority. Satan usurped authority and replaced it with what? His own. And his children do the same thing. They usurp authority and they claim that authority as their own. And so God judges. But where does that leave us? I mean, today when we think of God's judgment, we, do we think righteousness or do we think, man, that's harsh. That's not right. J.I. Packer wrote this. The judge is a person with authority. In the Bible world, the king was always the supreme judge because he was the supreme ruling authority. It's on that basis, according to the Bible, that God is judge of his world. As our maker, he owns us, and as our owner, he has the right to dispose of us. He has, therefore, a right to make laws for us and to reward us according to whether or not we keep them. Do you believe that God has the right to dispose of you? Now, dispose in this context doesn't mean throw you in the trash. It just means to do what he wills. Further, Packer writes this. The judge is a person of power to execute sentence. The modern judge does no more than pronounce the sentence. Another department of the judicial executive then carries it out. The same was true in the ancient world, he says, but God is his own executioner. As he legislates and sentences, so he punishes all judicial functions, coalesce him. I mean, the, the prosecuting attorney, the judge, the jury, and the executioner are all the same person. Our modern ears, they, they, they just go crazy with this. They go nuts. No one is that righteous, they loudly proclaim. But what does Scripture say? Turn with me to Revelation 16, 1 through 7, where we will read 
of the first three angels who pour out the unadulterated wrath of God on earth. Revelation 16, verses 1 through 7. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. These are difficult verses. They're difficult to read. They're difficult to hear. But I want you to note that there is encouragement here. First and foremost, while the bowls are generally... uh, while the, they're general in nature, uh, the, the judgments are specifically for those aimed uh, at those who bear the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. And that's so vital for us to understand. The, the people of God alive at that time are not targeted with these boils in particular. And it's important because The Lord knows the difference. The Lord knows the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The Lord knows what you do even when no one else does. The works of service, the words of encouragement that you offer as a matter of course, the cries in the dark, He will not forget. He knows He knows who you are. He knows what you've done. And as we go through these difficult times today, we must remind ourselves of who God is. Everything changes. But God does not change. No matter what happened, the angel proclaims, just are you in everything that you do. Your judgments are righteous. They are true. We have to remind ourselves that He is just. I mean, in in His difficulties come upon us, which they do, which for many they are now. Jesus Himself said, in this life, in this life you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is not permanent. I mean, the hard truth regarding perfect justice is this. Sin must be paid for. I mean, this is what God has decreed. And the wondrous thing is that Jesus received the judgment and paid for our sin 
who believed. And in that transaction, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Our sin is gone and Christ's righteousness is upon us. God's mercy is ever before us. You know, in Genesis 15, 16, which I think we've now mentioned like three, uh, three in a row. It, but it, the reason is, is it's so important to understand that his love and his mercy and above his, all his long suffering and patience with sinful man, i.e. with us, I mean, rather than destroying the Amorites, God chose to put his people into slavery for 400 years. When God settled his chosen people in the land, his enemies would be displaced. Yet God's enemies did not need to remain God's enemies. That's the thing. They were given time, plenty of time, abundant time. More than enough time to turn from their wickedness and turn to God and be forgiven. I mean, the Amorites had a chance to repent and to be saved, just as the Assyrians and Nineveh did during the time of Jonah. So, too, the people in tribulation. I, I mean, as we saw before, that before the sickle comes into the wheat for the judgment, uh, the harvest there, the, the wheat was already dried up. It was of no use before he judged. Look, the vials and the trumpets. You need to think about this from God's merciful perspective. They're sequential. This doesn't happen all in one day. This is, this is a way for people, anyone, anyone who to turn to Christ could turn to Christ. It was sequential so that the people would have an opportunity to repent. But as we see in the previous chapter, or two chapters, there's something ominous. There's something irrevocable about taking the mark of the beast. God is preparing His land for His people. And judgment has come. The end is near, as we read in Revelation 16 here. The end is near, so near, and then it comes suddenly as the bowls are poured out on the earth. I mean, look at verse 2. The first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth. Now, when you think of bowls, don't think of a bowl that pours. That's not the Greek word here. We don't have a good word for it. But the word is actually like a deep dish saucer. So if you've ever balanced water or something in a saucer, or think more of a plate, you're, it's, you're not going to hold it. And when it goes out, it just goes out. There is no pouring. Like you can pour from a bowl. There's no pouring. It just all, it just all comes out and it spills. And that's the essence. It just spills immediately. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now this word here is it's a very interesting word because it's exactly the same word that's translated in the Septuagint in Exodus 9 to describe the boils that the plague gave to the Egyptians. Those who received 
that mark are going to end up with intense pain in their physical bodies. In Deuteronomy 28, there's a judgment that's pronounced in verse 27. The Lord will smite you with boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Tribulation believers will not be affected. Remember in chapter 12, there are Jews that the Lord has spared. There are Gentiles who have rejected the mark of the beast and are still alive. They have not been yet executed by the Antichrist. They've escaped him. And tribulation believers will resist this mark. Never think in whatever your thinkings and your imaginations are that you're ever faced with receiving this mark that you will ever take it accidentally. You won't. You will not be able to do that. It is such a moral choice, a spiritual choice, that you will understand completely and totally what it means. The word for that mark is specifically a word that is only and always used in relationship to the emperor and how he marks his subjects so that they can engage in commerce. That's what that is. In other words, the people who don't receive the mark won't be able to buy anything or sell anything. They'll be outcasts trying to live on a desolate and desperate land. It will be tough, but it will not be, oh, this will be an easy way for you to swipe your credit card at McDonald's. Boom. No, that's not what this is. This will be a moral swearing of allegiance to worship or to obey the emperor, the Antichrist. This won't, there won't be no... Any mistakes. No one's mistakenly, wow, you know, I didn't really know what it was. So I, you know, God, what are you doing here? No, it's not the way it works. And then you have the second bowl. They come right on top of each other. There is no relief from the first. And here it comes. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And what happened? It became blood, like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. I mean, it's like the plague that fell on uh, Egypt in Exodus 7 and 22 through 25. It's like the trumpet that plague, except for it's in Revelation 8, except for it's much more extensive. It was just a few years ago, um, 2012, I think, that Galveston was hit by what's known as the red tide. Do you know what the red tide is? You've heard of that? I'll explain it if you haven't. The red tide is a toxic algae that for whatever reason and wherever it happens when it blooms, it just kills. It just kills. It just kills. It's what it does. It kills the fish. In 1949, uh, the red tide hit the coast of Florida, and there was a stretch. This particular bloom was so large. There was a stretch of 60 miles where the beaches were just simply covered with dead fish, just dead, row after row as the, as the water would wash them in, millions of fish. And then there were the, the fisheries who caught the fish before they had died and they served them and it poisoned the people. This is some nasty business and scientists understand that if the red tide was actually ever unabated, they don't, 
know exactly why it pops up, where it pops up, when it pops up, the size that it pops up, or how to get rid of it. But it actually has the power today, unchecked, to kill everything in the sea. Then the third bowl in verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl in the rivers and springs and the water and they became blood. So this is the same thing. I hope you're recognizing a pattern. If you understand what was happening at the Exodus in the preparation for God's people to leave and settle into the land, we see a very similar pattern here. And not only that, but you see that the, the sea's contaminated, now the fresh water's contaminated. But get this, if you read carefully and if you lit, lit, uh, <laughs> getting two words mixed up, and if you listened to what the witnesses were able to do, they were able to stop the rain like Elijah. And so it hasn't rained in like three and a half years. So there's a shortage of fresh water. The fresh water that's running is now no longer to drink. And this is awful. This is a simply a terrible judgment. So now we're back to where I started. I mean, it's all so unthinkable, really. And if anyone rejoices in this, it is it's something for you to pray about. And I do not rejoice in this. Our Lord God desires that none should perish. None. Even, even while judgment is coming down, he takes no joy in the destruction of the wicked. He is full of compassion and mercy. Doesn't seem fair, but the angel of the waters then, the angel of the waters, understand which angel this is that's speaking. This is the angel of the waters. I, and I, you know this angel just that relishes pure, clean water. And yet it's all fouled. But that angel, not any angel, that angel, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. It says in the text that the Lord is righteous and holy. He is just and He's virtuous. The reason that we do not, you, you, you don't have to take joy in something to say amen to something. And the reason we don't sing amen to these judgments and that this is what they deserve is because we do not, I believe, fully understand or appreciate that God has the right to rule over us. Those under this judgment literally Literally, with the two witnesses and the 144,000, had divine opportunity to come to him. They did not. They poured out the blood of saints and martyrs. They killed mercilessly believers and preachers. They've done it through the entire period of time. They deserve it. That's what the Bible says. They will receive the punishment of one who has trampled underfoot the precious blood of God's Son. They deserve it. 
And the angels, with no hesitation, with immediate affirmation, they know what's happening is right and just and holy. But we have to understand, as Jonathan Edwards did, that the wicked must not think simply because they are not physically in hell, that God is not at this very moment as angry with them as he is with those miserable creatures now tormented, who at this very moment do feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Simply because the wicked of today aren't being judged in that way, does not mean that God is any more pleased with them. His desire is that none should perish, not even those the judgment is coming upon. I want us to remember something. I want you to remember something. And that is this. While we speak of these whose God's wrath is being poured out upon, Remember that we were once among them. We, you and I, are, were just as deserving of the wrath of God as those men and women in this part of the tribulation. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Colossians 1 tells us that. I want you to open your heart and listen to me carefully. Whatever wrath the Lord has placed upon this earth, and whatever wrath He may yet pour out on the peoples of this earth, it is not to be compared with the day the sword of God's wrath was plunged into Jesus Christ for your sin. And mine, and the sins of the whole world. God's justice demands the price be paid. And it is our God, through Jesus Christ the Son, who has suffered more suffering, not than any one person, but that all of humanity has ever suffered. It fell on Him. Hallelujah. Christ paid the price for you, and He paid the price for me. Father, we are simply, well, dumbstruck, really, but we understand your love and your grace in our experience. And your mercy, too. Never let us think ourselves better than those outside your, your grace and mercy. It's just a matter of where we're at on our journey. We're not better. We're just saved. We just chose. 
Lord, may they choose. May they choose You. May they flee from the wrath to come and flee into Your arms through Christ our Lord.